Part two, chapter six of the life of Florence Nightingale, volume one. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1, by Edward Tyus Cook. The Reformer. We have made Miss Nightingale's acquaintance and are delighted and very much struck by her great gentleness and simplicity and wonderful, clear, and comprehensive head. I wish we had her at the War Office. Queen Victoria, Letter to the Duke of Cambridge, 1856. When one reads such twaddling nonsense, wrote Dr. Hall in November 1855 from the Crimea to Dr. Andrew Smith in London, as that uttered by Mr. Bracebridge and which was so much lauded in the Times because the garrulous old gentleman talked about Miss Nightingale putting hospitals containing three or four thousand patients in order in a couple of days by means of the Times funds, one cannot suppress a feeling of contempt for the man who indulges in such exaggerations and pity for the ignorant multitude who are deluded by these fairy tales. The contempt and pity of the Inspector General of the hospitals in the East were not unmixed. I think we may surmise with a good deal of anger, which we may also surmise was shared by his friends, the Director General of the Medical Department in London. Such feelings were in the course of human nature, and the exaggeration in the statement cited by Dr. Hall is palpable. Miss Nightingale was not a magician. It would be an idle fairy tale to represent that by her exertions either in a couple of days or a couple of months she effected a complete transformation scene, and it would be unfair to attribute solely to Miss Nightingale the gradual improvements which, though largely due to her initiative and resource, as described in preceding chapters, were in fact a result of the exertions of many persons, both at home and in the East. I have an unbounded admiration of Miss Nightingale's qualifications, said a deputy medical inspector, and of the manner she applies them, but I see dozens of things placed to her credit which I happen to know she had nothing to do with. Such was doubtless the case. Yet, though in one sense Dr. Hall was perfectly right, in another he was profoundly wrong. Neither he, however, nor any of the other medical men who shared his views need be blamed for their misapprehension. The facts of the case can only be fully understood now that access is obtainable to the private correspondence of Miss Nightingale and other actors in the drama. She did many things herself, but she was also the inspirer and instigator of more things which were done by others. She was able of her own initiative to institute considerable reforms, but she was a reformer on a larger scale through the influence which she exercised. Though she was in truth no magician, there were men on the spot who, not being able to understand the secret and sources of her power, seemed to find something uncanny in it. Our good friend Colonel Sterling, who hated the intrusion of petticoats into a campaign, was very much puzzled. The thing seemed to him ludicrous, as we have heard, but he had to admit that Miss Nightingale queens it with absolute power, and elsewhere he speaks of the Nightingale power as something mysterious and fabulous. The secret, however, is simple. The Nightingale power was due to causes of which some were inherent in herself and others were adventitious. The inherent strength of her influence lay in the masterful will and practical good sense which gave her dominion over the minds of men. The adventitious sources of her power were that she had both the ear and the confidence of ministers and the interest and sympathy of the court. 
I have called this accession of influence adventitious, but it also accrued to her in a secondary degree from the inherent force of her character. The influence of the court in strengthening, in speeding up, and sometimes in chiding ministers, especially in military matters, was, during the reign of Victoria, very great, as all readers of memoirs of the time are aware. And from an early period of Miss Nightingale's mission, the court had expressed a lively interest in it, and had intimated a wish that full consideration should be paid to her experiences and impressions. Would you tell Mrs. Herbert, wrote the Queen to Mr. Sidney Herbert, December 6, 1854, that I beg she would let me see frequently the accounts she receives from Miss Nightingale or Mrs. Bracebridge, as I hear no details of the wounded, though I see so many from officers, etc., about the battlefield, and naturally the former must interest me more than any one. Let Mrs. Herbert also know that I wish Miss Nightingale and the ladies would tell these poor noble wounded and sick men that no one takes a warmer interest or feels more for their sufferings or admires their courage and heroism more than their queen. Day and night she thinks of her beloved troops, so does the prince. Beg Mrs. Herbert to communicate these words to those ladies, as I know that our sympathy is much valued by these noble fellows. Upon the receipt of the Queen's message, the chaplain went through the wards, reading it to the men, and copies of it were also posted on the walls of the several hospitals. The men were touched, Miss Nightingale reported to Mr. Herbert, December 25. It is a very feeling letter, they said. She thinks of us, said with tears. Each man of us ought to have a copy which we will keep till our dying day. To think of her thinking of us, said another. I only wish I could go and fight for her again. The Queen's message was followed by more substantial proof of Her Majesty's interest and here again Miss Nightingale was made the intermediary between the throne and the soldiers. Through Mr. Sidney Herbert, the Queen had ascertained from Miss Nightingale the kind of comforts which would be useful to the wounded, and the following letter was sent to her by the keeper of the Queen's purse. Windsor Castle, December 14, 1854. Madam, I have received the commands of Her Majesty, the Queen, to forward by the ship Eagle some packages containing some comforts, and useful articles which Her Majesty wishes to be placed in your hands for distribution as you may think fit amongst the wounded and sick at Scutari. Her Majesty has wished to mark by some private contribution from herself her deep personal sympathy for the sufferings of these noble soldiers and her admiration of the patience and fortitude with which they have suffered both wounds and hardships. The Queen has directed me to ask you to undertake the distribution and application of these articles partly because her Majesty wished you to be made aware that your goodness and self-devotion in giving yourself up to the soothing attendance upon these wounded and sick soldiers has been observed by the Queen with sentiments of the highest approval and admiration, and partly because, as the articles sent did not come within the description of medical or government stores usually furnished, they could not be better entrusted than to one who, by constant personal observation, would form a correct judgment where they would be most usefully employed. The Queen sent presents of warm scarves and the like to Miss Nightingale's nurses. The position of almoner of the free gifts and the confidence thus shown by the sovereign greatly extended the prestige of Miss Nightingale, who was already known to command influence with the government, to have the favor of the press, and to be the darling of popular opinion. Officials might feel sore, and old fogies might grumble, but the fact became palpable that the Nightingale power had to be reckoned with. Section 2. 
It was, however, behind the scenes that Miss Nightingale's activity as a reformer was most powerfully exercised. In accordance with Her Majesty's command, reports from Miss Nightingale were forwarded to the Queen, and by her were sent on to the Duke of Newcastle. The Duke, writing to the Queen on December 22, 1854, assured Her Majesty that the condition of the hospitals at Scutari and the entire want of all method and arrangement in everything which concerns the comfort of the army were subjects of constant and most painful anxiety to him. Nothing can be more just, he added, than all Your Majesty's comments upon the state of facts exhibited by these letters, and the Duke of Newcastle has repeatedly during the last two months written in the strongest terms respecting them, but hitherto without avail and with little other result than a denial of charges, the truth of which must now be considered to be substantiated. It remained for ministers to do what was possible to remedy the evils. Mr. Sidney Herbert, who, as already stated, had relieved the Duke of Newcastle of hospital matters, needed no compulsion to zeal, and Miss Nightingale's letters to him showed in what directions his zeal could most usefully be employed. The government of Lord Aberdeen, defeated on the motion appointing the Roebuck Committee, resigned in January 1855, and Lord Palmerston became Prime Minister. The offices of Secretary for War and Secretary at War were amalgamated, and Lord Panmure became Secretary of State in place of the Duke of Newcastle. Mr. Herbert became for a short time Secretary of State for the Colonies and then resigned. But Mr. Herbert begged Miss Nightingale to continue writing to him, promising to forward her representations to the proper quarters. Lord Palmerston knew her personally, and Lord Panmure paid deference to her wishes and opinions, so that the change of government did not weaken her position. I have before me copies of a long series of letters addressed by Miss Nightingale to Mr. Herbert between November 1854 and May 1855. He had given her private instructions that she was to act as eye and ear for him in the East. Of her letters, a few were printed by Lord Stanmore in his memoir of Sidney Herbert, where also a series of Mr. Herbert's letters, both to her and to various officials concerned, is given. A comparison of the one set with the other shows very clearly how much of the improvements which the government of Lord Aberdeen and its successor were able to effect was due to the suggestions, the remonstrances, the entreaties of Miss Nightingale. Her letters are written with complete freedom and often in great haste. It would be possible to make isolated extracts from them, which would suggest that the writer was a censorious and uncharitable scold. But such a selection would convey a misleading impression Miss Nightingale wrote unreservedly about individuals, because she saw, as Mr. Herbert himself saw also, that the personnel was at fault and that the most admirable instructions from home would be useless unless there were men of some initiative and vigor to carry them out on the spot. She wrote in anger because she saw what Mr. Herbert soon came to know, that such men were not forthcoming. I write all this savagery, she said, March 5, 1855, because of the non-success of your unwearied efforts for the good of these poor hospitals. And then something must be allowed to the caustic humor, which when Miss Nightingale had a pen in her hand could not be denied, I shall make no further remark about him, she writes, of a certain individual, than that he is a fossil of the pure old red sandstone. Some newspaper has said of me, she writes on another occasion, that I am the fourth woman, query, old woman, that has had to do with the war. Who are the other three? 
and she goes on for Mr. Herbert's amusement to nominate three of his principal subordinates for the distinction. It would argue a lack of humor to take such epistolary diversions with no grain of salt, but I do not propose to follow the example of a previous writer who has had access to these letters in recording Miss Nightingale's remarks on individuals. I desire rather to illustrate from the letters and from other sources first the practical contributions to reform which Miss Nightingale made in some matters of detail and then her firm grasp of the large principles of sound administration. Section 3. Miss Nightingale performed the duties, as we have seen, of a purveyor to the sick and wounded portion of the British Army. The duty was assumed by her only because the home authorities had been deficient in foresight or the authorities on the spot were inefficient and hampered by official restrictions. Hence her earlier letters to Mr. Herbert were largely filled with urgent suggestions for the sending of government stores. She begs for hair mattresses or even flock as cheaper. The French hospitals were furnished throughout with hair mattresses. The British soldier was suffering terribly from bed sores. She pleads for knives and forks. The men have to tear their meat like wild beasts. She suggests mops, plates, dishes, toweling, disinfectants, and so forth. Obvious requirements, no doubt. But as Mr. Herbert said, the responsible authorities seem to have shrunk them sometimes from making requisitions, lest they should thereby confess the inadequacy of their preparations. It was Miss Nightingale again who suggested the need of carpenters to do odd jobs in the vast and imperfectly equipped Turkish buildings which served for the British hospitals. She expressed herself most gratefully for an invaluable reinforcement of them which Mr. Herbert had sent out, but their arrival necessitated a depletion in one department of her private stores. These men, she wrote, February 19, 1855, I had to find with knives, forks, and spoons in default of the purveyor, who besides would not provide them with rations unless the officer of engineers wrote urgent and asked it as a favor. Some building operations Miss Nightingale, as we have seen, took it upon herself to carry out, and some sanitary reforms she was able by her personal influence with the orderlies to effect. The instruction of the orderlies in their business was, she said, one of the main uses of us in the war hospitals. Other sanitary engineering works on a larger scale were ultimately carried out, thanks in part to her urgent and detailed representations to the authorities at home. She had pointed out repeatedly to them that the mere issuing of orders was insufficient. It was essential that executive powers should be placed in the hands of officials directly responsible for immediate action. When the government was reconstituted after the fall of Lord Aberdeen with Lord Panmure as Secretary for War, this lesson was taken faithfully to heart, and a commission of three, Dr. John Sutherland, Dr. Hector Gavin, and Mr. Robert Rawlinson, C.E., was sent out to the East with full executive powers. They received their instructions on February 19, 1855, and within three days they sailed. The tone of the instructions, says Kinglake, is peculiar and such as to make one believe that they owed much to feminine impulsion. The diction of the orders is such that in housekeeper's language it may be said to have bustled the servants. The credit for the bustling at home belongs, however, to Lord Shaftesbury, who had pressed the appointment of the commissioners upon Lord Panmore, and who was employed to draft their instructions. The duties of these sanitary commissioners were laid down with a minuteness of detail which Miss Nightingale herself could not have excelled and they were then told that the utmost expedition 
must be used in the execution of all that is necessary at the place of your destination. It is important that you be deeply impressed with the necessity of not resting content with an order, but that you see instantly by yourselves or your agents to the commencement of the work and to its superintendence day by day until it is finished. It is from the report of the sanitary commissioners that I drew many of the statements about the condition of the hospitals given in an earlier chapter. They set about the work of sanitary engineering with great dispatch, and the death rate in the hospitals fell as the result of their reforms with remarkable rapidity. The sanitary conditions of the hospitals of Scutari, Miss Nightingale told the Royal Commission of 1857, were inferior in point of crowding, ventilation, drainage, and cleanliness up to the middle of March 1855 to any civil hospital or to the poorest homes of the worst parts of the civil population of any large town that I have ever seen. After the sanitary works undertaken at that date were executed, June, I know no buildings in the world which I could compare with them in these points, the original defects of construction, of course, excepted. It was this commission, as Miss Nightingale said afterwards to Lord Shaftesbury, that saved the British Army. In Dr. Sutherland, the head of the sanitary commission, Miss Nightingale found a warm admirer and a stout supporter. During his stay at Scutari, he acted as her, her physician. On her return to England, she was on terms of intimate friendship with him and his wife, and Dr. Sutherland was, as we shall hear, one of her close allies in the battle for reform in army hygiene. With Mr. afterwards Sir Robert Rawlinson, she also formed a friendship which lasted to the end of his life. Dr. Gavin died in the Crimea during the work of the commission. In the matter of stores, whatever suggestions or requisitions Miss Nightingale sent home were complied with by government, but it was one thing to send stores out, and quite another to secure that they should arrive when and where they were wanted. Sydney, wrote Mrs. Herbert to Mrs. Bracebridge, November 17, 54, has sent heaps of armchairs, etnas, and other comforts, but is in terrible fear that they may have been carried on with the troops to Balaclava from some blunder. Miss Nightingale's unerring eye for detail and perception of the point saw where the evil lay. First, there was no coordination among the departments at home in packing the things. The prince, the wreck of which in the famous hurricane of November 14 was disastrous to the welfare of the soldiers, had on board, she wrote, a quantity of medical comforts for us, which were so packed under shot and shell as that it was found impossible to disembark them here, and they went to Balaclava and were lost. But there was a second obstacle. The army had encamped at Scutari as early as May 1854, but it had occurred to nobody to establish either there or at Constantinople an office for the reception and delivery of goods. Packages intended for the army of the hospitals, if they arrived in merchant vessels, were detained in the Turkish custom house, from which they were never extracted without much delay, difficulty, and confusion. Many were partially or entirely destroyed, and many abstracted and totally lost. The custom house, said Miss Nightingale, was a bottomless pit whence nothing ever issued of all that was thrown in. In the case of ships chartered by the government, great masses of goods were necessarily landed together and stowed away promiscuously for want of time and space for sorting, and were often delayed by an unnecessary trip to Balaclava and back again. There were occasions in which vessels containing hospital stores as well as munitions of war made three voyages to and fro before the former were landed at Scutari. 
Sometimes when Miss Nightingale happened to hear of an incoming vessel betimes, she was able, by special petition to the military authorities, to intercept hospital stores. But she saw what no one else seems to have done, that the whole system was at fault. It is absolutely necessary, she wrote, that there should be a government storehouse in the shape of a hulk, where stores for the British from whatever ships could be received at once from them and be delivered on the ship storekeeper's receipt. There are no storehouses to be had by the water's edge, and porterage is very expensive and slow. In March 1855, Miss Nightingale's solution was adopted. As purveyor, Miss Nightingale was directly concerned only with the sick and wounded, but the condition in which the men arrived at Scutari enabled her to learn the state of things at the front, and she urged upon Mr. Herbert the necessity of sending out warm clothing to the army in the Crimea. The state of the troops who return here, particularly those 500 who were admitted on the 19th, is frostbitten, demi-nude, starved, ragged. If the troops who work in the trenches are not supplied with warm clothing, Napoleon's Russian campaign will be repeated here. The terrible experiences of the British Army before Sebastopol during the winter of 1854-55 were some fulfillment of her prediction. When opportunity offered, she similarly sent suggestions to Lord Panmure, then in reply to a letter of kind inquiries from him about her health. August 1855, she called attention to the disproportionate number of patients which came from the artillery and threw out hints for economizing the men's labor. On a matter of the soldiers' pay, she was the means of remedying a hardship which had struck her at Scutari. She pressed earnestly upon Mr. Herbert that hospital stoppages against the daily pay of the sick soldier, nine pence, should be made equal to the hospital stoppage against the wounded soldier, four and a half, provided that the sickness be incurred while on duty before the enemy. She made this representation in December 1854, not only to Mr. Herbert, but to the Queen. On February 1, 1855, she heard with great satisfaction that her suggestion had been adopted and that the soldiers' accounts were to be rectified in that sense as from the Battle of the Alma. End of The Reformer, Part 1